0: Okay. One other announcement. Um, one of the things that is a one of the factors in a client nation is not only that uh, they support Israel, but also that they send out missionaries. And missionaries are a vital part of of uh, the role and function of any local church ministry. And this coming week, we're going to get a tremendous opportunity to get to know a missionary who's a good friend of mine and I've known for many years and worked with and you've heard of many times, and that's Jim Myers. Jim's coming in on, on Wednesday. He and his wife will be here for a week. And Wednesday night, uh, he's going to give after we'll have kind of a shortened Bible class. We'll start 730. By the way, we've been running a little late. And I noticed this last Wednesday night that since um, uh, we've been running late because of technical difficulties for the last uh, month or so, And people are trying to set up the camera and get the sound working and everything. People are starting to come ten minutes late. Well, everybody involved with sound equipment is expected to be here no later than ten minutes before class starts at any given time. So that everything is all ready to go. And I think we've got it worked out so that this Wednesday night we will be able to start at 730. And I will go for about 40, I will teach for about 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes and then Jim will uh, give a summary uh, report on what he does over in Kiev in uh, Ukraine, and that will probably take 20 to 30 minutes. So just factor that in. We won't stay, of course, most schools out. Is Preston out yet? Preston's out? So uh, most schools are out, so that's not going to be a problem with keeping the kids out late or anything like that. But just to let you know so that you can plan, and then uh, next week, we're going to be, uh, during prep school, they will be, Jim and Phyllis both will be down talking to the kids so we can give the, the, the kids in prep school some exposure to missions and missionaries and uh, that. So uh, we'll plan on that, and that way you can get to know them some. They'll be here uh, Dan's also Dan Ingram's also going to be up next weekend, so it's just going to be a big, big, important weekend next weekend. So be sure you're here. In fact, I have uh, since I have uh, Jim and Phyllis both, and they can both sing well. Jim will be leading the singing next week, and also teaching us a new version of an old hymn that everyone needs to learn. But it has two parts to it. See, we're going to turn the church into a, the congregation into a choir, and it has a uh, men's part and a woman's part on the chorus. So we need everybody here. We'll sing at both hours to try to drill it into us so that uh, you can remember it, and then we'll sing it for several weeks to try to reinforce that. But uh, we need to have someone who knows the ladies' part in the chorus, and I can't sing that high, and I'm not sure I know the ladies' part or want to scare you that much. So be sure to be here Wednesday night and uh, next Sunday. I will be teaching next Sunday as well, uh, so don't think that because he's here that you're going to cut class and get away with something. So, and Jim is—you know—of all the people that I know out of the doctrinal churches, and all the pastors that I have spent time with over the years, uh, Jim and I are probably closer in our thinking, and he is an excellent student of the Word. And I've always been impressed with him and his uh, abilities. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and has done an excellent job with the education that God's provided him. In fact, I think I first knew of him when I was in high school. He was he was leading the singing at Baraka Church back in the late 60s and early 70s. I was just a baby at that time, so. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the privilege to gather together to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and we know that we see light. Through your light. Father, we pray for our nation that, uh, during this time of war against terrorism, we continue to pray for our president, vice president, pray for congressional leaders, pray for military leaders and those in the cabinet who are responsible for making decisions, pray for those who are operating in the fields of intelligence, uh, gathering and analyzing information, pray that they would be perceptive, pray that they would, uh, that you would bring to their attention the correct information that they might be able to, uh, uh, function in a way that that uh, protects this nation, we continue to pray for those who are in Afghanistan, those who are protecting the troops, those who are involved in combat. We pray that you would give them courage and wisdom and skill in their strategy and their tactics. Father, we pray for the enemy that you would confuse them and confound them and continue to uh, keep the wall of fire around this nation to protect it, that we might uh, continue to be a bastion of freedom that we might continue to send out missionaries that we might continue to be a strong support for Israel in the Middle East. Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that you would challenge us with the things that we're studying. Help us to understand how they relate to our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, that we may be challenged to continue our our growth and advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to a passage that is a crucial passage for understanding the dynamics of the spiritual life, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. One of the most difficult things that has plagued pastors, theologians, and many Christians ever since the early days of the church has been, what do you do with sin in the life of a believer? And it's amazing that even in the early church under the apostles, they, they struggled with this. I think this was a problem that we see John dealing with with the uh, incipient Gnosticism that was affecting the congregation in Ephesus and as part of the background of 1 John. We see Paul having to deal with it in, in the problem with legalism, uh, legalism in the Christian life that had reared its ugly head in the congregation at Galatia. We see Paul having to deal with it in the congregation of Rome, especially in his chapters 6 through 8. Many of these passages, in fact most of them we have studied at one time or another, so the the basic ideas in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 are not unfamiliar to us. But unfortunately they are unfamiliar to many believers and many Christians. They don't understand these dynamics and there is much that is taught that's wrong on these passages, much that is taught that it's wrong simply because it appears to be, uh, is on the surface, just at first glance, reading through the scriptures, it seems to be saying it, uh, one thing, and it's really saying something else. It, it seems, if you come at the passage with a certain preconceived mindset, that, that 1 Corinthians 2, the, the last half of 1 Corinthians 2, which we've covered the last several weeks, and 1 Corinthians 3 is addressed to the issue of spiritual uh, maturity or spirituality as maturity as opposed to spirituality in terms of an absolute and that's really the issue that is something that is so rarely understood and we have uh, I've outlined four problems that people run into when they come to this passage or some of the others that we've studied when it comes to the spiritual life the first problem is that that there people so often have an inadequate view of the sin nature people have an inadequate view of the sin nature that somehow the sin nature especially for the believer after salvation just is not as bad as it was before you were saved it, it's not somehow something happens at salvation which limits the influence, limits the power, limits the evil of the sin nature, so that the conclusion is that if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, if you're in the royal family of God, that that somehow you won't do things that unbelievers do. That is an inadequate view of sin, and that's part of the problem, is that that there is a superficial view of what sin is. In conversations that I have with folks... um, Trying to, struggling with issues related to this. It always comes down to the fact that people are overemphasizing certain overt sins. Often they're sexual sins. Often they're sins of perversion. Sins that uh, shock and, and, uh, offend many people. And there, there's this idea that sin somehow is, is, there, there's a relativity to sin. And there is a relativity to sin. In other words, the the realm of relativity in sin has to do with its consequences in time. Some sins have greater consequences in time than others. Some sins have greater consequences on your soul than other sins. Some sins have greater uh, consequences in your personal life, in your career than other sins. We see the, the fact that in the last couple of days there's been an emphasis in the news media on the fact that this is the uh, 30th anniversary of, of uh, Watergate. Certainly you have a decision that was made of the, the magnitude that was made by President Nixon, and the consequences of that are something that destroyed his career, and destroyed his reputation, and will always be a blot on his record. So there are some sins that we commit that, relatively speaking, when compared to other sins and compared to other people, they have greater consequences. But there's also an absolute status for sin, and that has to do when it, it, with its comparison to the absolute righteousness of God. All sin is sin, whether it is a small, so-called white lie, whether it is a uh, a, a mental attitude sin such as arrogance or pride, which can manifest itself in in rather benign forms, in in terms of pseudo compassion and pseudo humility, where it doesn't look so bad and doesn't seem to be so harmful, to to more egregious forms of arrogance that uh, produce someone like an Adolf Hitler or a Saddam Hussein or or uh, a Bin Laden. This is extreme forms of of arrogance, in some cases, religious arrogance that is even more destructive to the lives of people but but arrogance. Because it is not overt, because it is often masked and, and cloaked under the guise of morality and the, under the guise of doing good and doing benevolent things for mankind, is often overlooked, but someone who is a mass murderer, somebody who is a serial killer, somebody who is a, a committed genocide, someone whose life uh, just reeks of hatred and bitterness and anger towards uh, other people and prejudice these are the people that that our society tends to paint with that dark brush of evil and so we we tend to look at certain sins and classify them as so evil that that no christian no true child of god could ever commit such a sin and then as soon as we see someone do that we say well that person probably wasn't ever say they weren't genuinely saved they weren't aren't a true uh they weren't a true believer they just had a a uh, intellectual Faith and not a heart faith, and that's the way that's usually expressed by those who don't understand what the Bible teaches. And so the first problem derives from the fact that people have an inadequate view of the sin nature. The second reason we have a problem in understanding sin in the life of the believer after salvation is um, there's a distorted view of regeneration, a distorted view of regeneration. We don't understand just exactly what happens At Regeneration, and I'll uh, never forget being somewhat shocked and surprised when I read a scholarly article published in the uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society several years ago that was about Lewis Berry Chafer. And this uh, article had to do with Lewis Berry Chafer's view of the spiritual life, which is basically the view of the spiritual life which we hold to, which we believe and which is consistently taught from this pulpit. And in that article which incidentally was written by a classmate of mine uh, when I was doing my uh, doctoral work at Dallas. And it really surprised me because I thought this guy understood grace, but obviously as the years went by, he became enamored and influenced by a uh, lordship view of salvation. And he wrote at the conclusion of this article, he said that, the basic problem that Lewis Ferry Schaefer had with his view of the spiritual life was that he didn't understand the power. He had a low view of regeneration. He didn't understand all that happened at salvation. And what happens at salvation is that, that it, it, the new nature uh, overpowers and limits and dilutes the sin nature so that it's not as evil, it's not as wicked and it can't produce all that it could produce before you were saved. So this is part of the problem, is a distorted view of regeneration. third problem is a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about the makeup of man in terms of body, soul, and spirit, what we call trichotomy. The man is made up of a body and a soul at birth, but then at regeneration he receives a human spirit, and that that human spirit, therefore, is... A Uh, distinct, it's a distinct thing, it's an immaterial element of of man's nature and man's makeup that is uh, not to be contrasted with uh, the sin nature, so there's not this, uh, it's not the human spirit versus the sin nature, these are not, this isn't comparing like with like, it's not apples and oranges, and so they fall into a trap there, and there's tremendous uh, confusion sometimes on the nature of these uh, terms that speak of man's basic uh, makeup. And then the fourth area of of problems is that people tend to, because of the first three preconceived notions, because of problems in those first three areas, uh, people tend to mistranslate certain key passages, such as uh, 1 John 3, 9, where he talked about the fact that that a a believer would not sin, and they translate that present tense there, has continued to sin, and we studied that. And and recent scholarship, at least in the last 20 years of um, of Greek scholarship, there have been several articles written showing that that's a, a an inadequate use or, or a poor use or wrong use of the present tense uh, in that verse. That the present tense there doesn't mean to continue to sin. And the idea w- would be, if they were right, is that the true believer doesn't continue. To sin, but we have studied that, and that's available on on uh, on tape. Also, certain other passages, such as Galatians 5 and Romans 7, are also mi- mistranslated because of these preconceived notions. So, before we get into the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we need to briefly review the doctrine of the sin nature and carnality. So, we'll start with a brief review about eight points. On the doctrine of carnality. First of all, the sin nature remains in the believer after salvation. The sin nature remains in the believer after salvation, and that sin nature is just as strong, just as powerful as it was before salvation. Nothing changes. The believer receives a new nature, and that is the reception of the human spirit, but the sin nature continues. Now let's just review the sin nature. We use a diagram of a diamond, and the core of the sin nature is the lust pattern, and we derive that biblically from Galatians 5:16 through 18, where it talks about the lust of the flesh wars against the Holy Spirit. So, lust is the key motivator. This is what drives the sin nature, but it drives the sin nature as it were in two different directions. One is an area we call the area of strength. This is called the area of strength because we're strong towards sin. We don't easily succumb to sin in these areas. And so rather than producing sin, it produces morality, it produces good deeds. And this is something that is not understood and not taught, that morality can be just as sinful as immorality. Morality is not a synonym for sin, Morality can be just as sinful. I mean, morality is not a uh, in contrast to sin. Morality can be just as much a product of the sin nature as immorality. Think about all of the false religious systems, the pseudo-religious systems, such as Pharisaism, which were extremely moral, and yet Jesus Christ condemned them as unrighteous. Because it was all done apart from God, so human good is is morality that is produced from the sin nature. Then we have at the other extreme the area of weakness where we easily succumb to personal sins, and personal sins are produced in three categories: mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. And often we tend to gravitate towards defining sin in terms of the overt sins or sins of the tongue. often we uh, forget the sins of the tongue as well, sins such as gossip and slander. And we easily try to uh, uh, justify certain kinds of gossip and slander by wrapping it in the cloak of prayer requests. And that often happens at prayer meetings when you have somebody say, pray for my husband or pray for my wife, and then right after that they slander their character under the guise of a prayer request. Uh, we have personal sins that are committed, and mental attitude sins are the worst because they are the ones that are that, that motivate both the sins of the tongue and the overt sins, and yet it is those mental attitude sins that often sneak by so that you can have someone who overtly is rather moral, but on the inside they are just loaded with arrogance and independence from God. Now, the lust patterns drive people in two different directions. And this is where people get so confused because so many folks are attracted to certain kinds of churches, churches that en- emphasize overt works, uh, religious organizations that emphasize Christian service, emphasize ritual, and emphasize uh, certain kinds of religious activities. And these then are those who are prone towards asceticism and legalism. And see, asceticism and legalism can go hand in hand with a person whose area of strength is in human good. And so a person who tends to be an ascetic, a person who tends to be a legalistic, who, who from their sin nature, they're just, their, their their attraction is towards uh, living a moral life, they succumb to moral degeneracy, and, and that's a, a term that... that, that Is not understood by a lot of folks because we tend to think of immorality as degeneracy. And yet, once again, we must use the example of the Pharisees in the New Testament as examples of people who are morally degenerate. They were religious degenerates. They had perverted the Mosaic Law. They had perverted the Old Testament revelation of God. So they are morally degenerate. They are ascetic. They are legalistic. And yet... From the outside, many people would think, oh, aren't, don't they have a wonderful relationship with God because they spent so much time emphasizing their quiet time, their prayer seven times a day, uh, going to the temple and fasting and all of these and giving tithes, and they made a big show of that. On the other hand, you have those who, who well, they're just not as prone to uh, morality. In fact, their trend is towards immorality. They're their area of weakness is towards licentiousness and lasciviousness, and it's real easy to spot them because of the the overt sins that they commit. These are the the prostitutes and the drunkards that Jesus would associate with. See, they, the what I like about the licentious and lascivious crowd is that they know they're sinners, and they they know they need grace. But the moral degenerates, the ascetics, and the legalists don't know they need grace. They think that that they. God is impressed by who they are and what they've done for him. So all of this is produced by the sin nature. And the sin nature remains just as active after salvation. That means that the sin nature can produce morality prior to that and religious activity prior to salvation. It can do so afterwards. But now that a person is saved, when they produce morality and religious activities, it's often labeled spirituality. So we have to look at how the Bible uses the term spirituality and not how man uses the term spirituality, and especially in today's world where spirituality has become a a real hot popular term and everybody's interested in spirituality, and I think all it means is the way it's used by most people is they just want to get a little more in touch with themselves and their own feelings, which is, golly, that's self-absorption. That's arrogance. So spirituality is being redefined psychologically in terms of, of arrogance today. So the first point is the sin nature remains after salvation. The second part, second point, the sin nature does not lose power after salvation. There's no biblical basis for the idea that the sin nature is less potent after salvation. In fact, the sin nature does not decrease in power as you mature as a believer. It is just as powerful the, the, the day you die as it was the day you became a believer. No matter how mature you become, the sin nature remains the same. Its area of strengths may differ. It's, uh, your, uh, sensitivity to it may increase. You may become more aware of sin that uh, you were not aware of when you were a young believer. But the sin nature doesn't change. It doesn't become more powerful. It doesn't become less powerful. It just stays the same. You still have that same rotten, corrupt nature. Uh, from the day you were born, nothing changes, and there's no biblical basis for that idea. I've had some people float some scriptures by me from Ephesians and a few other places, but but all they indicate is that the believer's struggle with the sin nature may increase as he advances in maturity simply because he is more and more aware or becomes more and more aware of the what the sin nature is doing in his own life. Third, the sin nature is not only the source of sin, but it can also be, and it's also the source of morality. We have to distinguish between morality and what we can produce on our own, apart from God the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual virtues that are produced by God the Holy Spirit and categorized as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five, twenty-two and 23. So the sin nature is not only the source of sin, not only produces sin, but also produces morality in the unbeliever. Remember, the unbeliever can only operate on the sin nature up to the point that you're saved from birth to the day you're saved, whether that's at age six, whether that's at age twenty six or age sixty six from birth to the day you are born again or trust Christ alone for your salvation. You are under the control of the sin nature, and everything you do comes from the sin nature, no matter how good it is, no matter how wonderful it is, no matter how kind and generous it is. All of that came from the sin nature. So think about some of those unbelievers you know, some of the unbelievers you know that are have a quality of life, have a certain measure of virtue and honor in their lives. That all comes from their sin nature. Everything that they're producing comes from their sin nature. All those altruistic works, all the good deeds, all the uh, involvement they have in in uh, human good projects, because that's what they are for the and I, for the uh, unbelievers. Human good. Now, I want to say something at this point. They're, the only difference between a believer getting involved and uh, certain projects that help the world at large, and the unbeliever, it's not human human good. Too often it's the idea of getting involved in uh, beneficial projects for mankind. For, for example, charity work, working with uh, hospitals, things of that nature. The only difference between that being human good and divine good is your relationship to the Holy Spirit when you do it. Somehow along the way, people have gotten the idea that getting involved in, in these kinds of uh, projects, charity work, it, it's human good, and therefore you shouldn't do it. No, it's only human good if you're doing it in the flesh and not in the power of the sin nature. In fact, historically, it is Christianity that produced charities. Hospitals grew out of You didn't have hospitals develop in Buddhism and Hinduism and in Islam. Hospitals are the result of what uh, what, what occurred among believers having compassion on those who were ill. And you don't have a genuine basis for compassion in other religions other than in Christianity. But in the third point, we're just focusing on the unbeliever, and that is that the unbeliever has a sin nature that produces sin and morality. It can't, his, immor- his excuse me, his morality cannot come from any other source. Fourth point. Many unbelievers will have a more impressive morality if their trend is towards asceticism and legalism than believers who have a trend in their sin nature toward licentiousness. Now, that's an important point. You have a believer, on the one hand, who has a trend towards licentiousness in his sin nature, and this guy is the worst rake in the world, womanizer, drug dealer, uh, all of that in his as an unbeliever, and then he becomes saved. Well, after he's saved, unless this person gets in the Word and is really positive to the Word and begins to walk by God the Holy Spirit, he is still going to have those trends The sin. Nature is still going in his in his life is still going to push him in the same direction it was pushing him before he was saved. He's still going to struggle with those same sins, the same temptations. But on the other hand, you're going to find some unbeliever who's ex- whose trend in his sin nature is towards asceticism and legalism and that individual is going to be very moral and very religious and you're going to compare these two and you're going to say, Well, this guy must be going to heaven because they're so wonderful. They go to church every week. They're involved in all the service organizations. They go out there and they pass out Bibles. They go to the hospital and they visit the sick. And then this other guy here, he talks about Jesus, but, you know, he's he's still fighting with uh alcoholism, he's still struggling with drugs, and, and every now and then he uh, he has problems with women. I mean, how can this guy be a believer and this other this guy be going to heaven and this good man be going to the lake of fire? See, we don't understand the dynamics of the sin nature, so we put the emphasis on overt behavior and not on what, has, what the Word of God says has transpired in the soul. So point four emphasizes the fact that many unbelievers will have a more impressive morality than believers whose trend in the sin nature is toward licentiousness. Point number five, the believer can choose not to operate on the sin nature and only the believer can make that choice under the Holy Spirit. Only the believer who has the Holy Spirit dwelling him can choose to be filled by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit and not produce sin. The unbeliever cannot do this. And we the basis for this for the believer is found at first in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, where Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. In the previous verses, he has outlined uh, the doctrine of positional truth and that at salvation the believers are no longer slaves to sin, but all unbelievers are born enslaved to the sin nature. therefore, since believers are have have had that bondage to the sin nature broken at salvation, we can live apart from the sin nature without yielding to its influence. So Paul says, "Do not let sin reign in your mortal body." that you should obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, of righteousness to God. And then in Galatians 5, Paul says, I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, this is so important to understand, Galatians five sixteen to 18, and the terminology there when we come and we try to understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit. It's a present, active imperative, and it emphasizes the, the habit, the continuous habit in the believer's life. And then he says, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Actually, in the Greek, he uses a double negative plus a subjunctive mood verb, which is the strongest way to state an, an impossibility. You it will be impossible for you to bring to completion uh, literally the lust of the flesh here, not just desire, but lust. So it's talking about that inner motive of the sin nature, which is the lust pattern. And Paul says if you're walking in dependence on God the Holy Spirit, it will be impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what has to happen is that the believer has to either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally stop walking by the Holy Spirit, at which time, He he starts walking according to the sin nature. And this is verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The flesh is the term for the sin nature. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And the point that we need to remember here is that Paul says it's either one or the other. You're either walking by the spirit at any point in your life, or you're walking according to the sin nature. One or the other. You can't it's not a mixed bag. You're not par- your, your motive isn't a mixed motive, so that you're partially spiritual and partially uh, walking according to the flesh. It's either one or the other. And as we will see, the only way to recovery is through confession of sin. But the point that I'm making here is that in... Uh, Galatians 5:16 and 17 the point is that the believer has the option to not sin the unbeliever never has an option to not operate on the sin nature he may not sin he may commit human he may be involved in human good but it still comes from the sin nature so Galatians 5:16 and 17 emphasizes the fact that the believer can live a life that at times is not characterized by sin where he's not operating on the sin nature Point number six, we cannot overestimate the power of the sin nature. It's impossible to overstate the power of the sin nature. Jeremiah seventeen nine states, the heart, and here the word, uh, the Hebrew word lave is talking about the sin nature, the heart, that is the, the, uh, the, the sin nature, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Now, I prefer the King James translation, which was desperately wicked, but actually the Hebrew Anush means incurably sick. It's incurable. That means you can't reverse it, limit it, or reduce its power. It is incurable. Even at salvation, it's not cured. The power is broken, but it's still there. It's not limited in any way. Point number seven, the source of sin is volition. The basis for sin is the sin nature. The influence is the sin nature. We have to be careful on our terminology there. The source comes from your volition. You choose to sin. Now, because there's no alternate in the unbeliever, he can only choose to sin. Only the believer has an option. Uh, not to sin. So the source of sin is your volition. Therefore, we are responsible for every sin, whether we know it's a sin or not, because we want to do it, we do it. That's why you never can use ignorance of the law for an excuse. That's where we get that principle. It doesn't matter. You can be driving down, uh, in front of the school here during, when, when school's on and the speed limit is, is lower. And if you don't know that, and you're ignorant of that, ignorant that you're in a school zone, uh, it doesn't matter the police officer is going to give you a ticket. doesn't matter how ignorant of the law you were. Ignorance of the law is never an excuse. And if we extrapolate that principle beyond just a simple traffic ticket, it also means ignorance of the law or a so-called psychotic state is not an excuse for disobeying any law, which means that no matter how psychotic a person may be, remember they got they weren't born that way. They got their way beca- that got that way because of one decision piled on another decision. And bad decisions accumulate in a person's soul and they produce what we Sometimes call mental illness, which is a wrong term it 's not a disease. it is the consequence of bad decisions and when people commit get so messed up in their soul that they commit certain kinds of bad decisions such as uh, murder, such as uh, sexual assault, then they should be executed and removed as the penalty for making so many bad decisions. The Bible holds people accountable for every bad decision that they make. The only solution, therefore, is grace, which comes at the cross, and grace provides us with salvation. But even if we commit capital crimes, we're saved, and our relationship with the Lord is okay, but we still are to be executed. There was a problem a couple of years ago. There was a woman down in Texas, uh, Carla Faye Tucker, who became a believer when she was in prison. And she had committed a horrible crime, horrible murder, and so she was to be executed. And a lot of uh, believers, a lot of pastors who didn't know any better said, well, now that she's a believer, we shouldn't execute her. Well, the Bible never addresses it that way. It doesn't matter what your spiritual status is if you commit certain crimes then you should be executed because you have forfeited the right to live. It's not a matter of deterring other people, although that might be a byproduct. It is a matter of forfeiting life, and only God has the right to commute a death penalty. He did so several times in Scripture. He did so with David. David committed committed uh, two or three capital offenses and should have been put to death. But God commuted the death sentence, but God never delegates the Uh, Ability to commute death penalties to mankind. He reserves that right for himself. And incidentally, somebody always comes up with the objection that, well, courts make mistakes. Okay, if that's true, then God made a mistake. Oh, see, whenever you use that as a, as an excuse for not having the death penalty, you're committing blasphemy against God because God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knew men would mess up the application of the death penalty. And yet God still authorized and mandated the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9 in the Mosaic Law and it's restated in uh, Romans chapter 13. So if you want to use man's failure as an excuse for not fulfilling the principle, then uh, you are impugning the very character of God in your objection. So that's not a valid objection. The source of sin is volition. We are responsible for our sin, even though we may not have an alternative. We're still responsible because we want to do it and we do it. That's the principle. And then point number eight, the issue in the Christian life is whose leadership are you following? The Holy Spirit or the sin nature? That is the issue. Now, when we come to this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there are four things that need to be clarified as we look at these passages. First of all, we have to understand the contrast between the natural man in 2.14 and the spiritual in 2.14. Because the term spiritual is used in a slightly different way there than it is in 1 Corinthians 3. It's not that it's in contrast, it's Paul, use, Paul builds the terminology. He's using it in a more restrictive way to refer just to regeneration in 2.14. But remember, in the church age, regeneration brings something else with it. The indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're automatically filled at salvation. We lose it when we sin, and we recover it through 1 John 1.9. But spiritual in the church age refers to something more than simply regeneration. In the Old Testament, it did not include the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit, so it was just regeneration and Paul adds to the concept, so we have to look at the contrast between natural and spiritual in 2.14 and the meaning of spiritual in 2.14, and then we have to look at the contrast between carnal and spiritual in chapter 3. See, in chapter 2, uh, the spiritual is contrasted with the unbeliever. But the term spiritual is contrasted with a disobedient believer in chapter 3, so it obviously takes on a, an added meaning by the time you get down to chapter 3, verses verse 1. And then we have to understand the meaning of the word carnal. Well, to get started, let's have a quick review of where, where Paul, what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verses four, uh, 14 through 16. There we read, a natural man, Sukikos, the soulish man, that is the individual who does not possess a human spirit, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now let me add a little note here, because I know that there are some there are folks that listen to these tapes that are going through seminary and uh, this last week I took the time to, to read through this section in some of the more recent commentaries that have been written, and they all make a terrible assumption right out of the gate before they get into any exegesis, and that is that every time they see the word pneuma, it automatically refers to the Holy Spirit. And the contrast here is always between uh, the Holy Spirit and the unregenerate. They just assume that. And I have made the point as we've gone through this passage that if that it builds off of a quotation from the Old Testament that's back in uh, verse 9 of chapter 2. So whatever is said has, at its very core about learning doctrine, being able to understand doctrine, has to apply to an Old Testament believer. Furthermore, the incident that Paul develops from this is seen earlier when Paul says that if the rulers of this age had known the word, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, the rulers who crucified him were operating during the age of Israel, the Old Testament dispensation, when the Holy Spirit wasn't available. So for those two reasons, he can't be talking about the Holy Spirit as the necessary ingredient to understand the things uh, of God. And almost without exception, the modern commentaries just make this assumption. They've been so heavily influenced in many cases by the charismatic movement that they just can't get past that concept. And in fact, when uh, I developed this a couple of lessons back, and I, we went to Jude chapter 19 to show that Sukikos means not having a spirit, I looked; at, these were detailed technical commentaries on the Greek, and I looked through three of them, and not once did anybody reference Sukikas in Jude nineteen. It is completely ignored in terms of defining the term, and yet that's where uh, Jude defines the term through the, that appositional phrase, not having a spirit. So there are some uh, with that kind of influence in the publishing world and in the commentaries out there. It shouldn't be surprising that most pastors can't properly exegete this passage because they're not doing the kind of work they ought to be doing in the text. Now, this verse contrasts the natural man with the one who is spiritual. We have seen that man is made up of three parts, a human body, the physical body, and a soul made up of self-consciousness, mentality, volition, conscience, emotion. So here we have your... You're meant the basic unbeliever. At point of birth, there is no human spirit. We were born spiritually dead. That means we are born without a human spirit. Now, Adam was created with that human spirit. And that human spirit is what allowed his mentality, self-consciousness, emotion, volition, conscience, to have a relationship with God. But when he disobeyed God, he lost that human spirit. And so he could no longer understand the things of God. He could no longer have a relationship with God. So this passage is talking about the fact that first and foremost, before you can understand the things of God, what God has revealed, you have to have a human uh, spirit. This is referred to just an immaterial part of man that pulls everything together and allows uh, the soul to have a relationship with God. So in that verse, natural man is a reference to the soulish Man, the unbeliever who cannot learn doctrine. Point number two, the spiritual man is spiritual in two senses. In that passage, he's spiritual because he possesses a human spirit in contrast to what the natural man does not possess. And the contrast is clearly between the unregenerate and the regenerate. So the first sense of spiritual has to do with being regenerate being born again putting at which occurs at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone that gives them the ability then the potential to understand the Word, and that's 1 Corinthians 2.15. He who is spiritual appraises all things. The all things is a reference to Scripture. Appraises is the ability to investigate. So we should translate it, he who is spiritual, that is, he who is regenerate, has the ability to investigate the Scriptures, yet he himself is investigated by no man. That is, the unbeliever is not going to be able to understand the motives and the mechanics for the believer's life. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Notice the emphasis in this whole section is on learning something. It's on learning God's revelation, knowing what God has for us. Now, that's going to be crucial for the correct interpretation of a phrase in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, let's go on to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, "...and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ." Now, before we get started in chapter 3, we have to understand the flow of Paul's argument. Remember back in chapter 1, he started off reminding the Corinthians that they were sanctified, they were in Christ. They had a position in Christ, and because they failed to understand that, there were all kinds of problems and divisions in the congregation. They were siding with Apollos, some were siding with Paul, others were siding with other. Other teachers like Peter and the really holy ones, you know, you always have the charismatic crowd that comes along and says, well, I'm following Jesus. So you always have that that kind of division that takes place. And now Paul's going to tie all of this together. He left that subject, and and it seemed like he's on this rabbit trail, because for the rest of chapter 1 and down through chapter 2, he's talking about knowledge. He's talking about the contrast between the way man naturally knows, human viewpoint thinking versus divine viewpoint thinking, the contrast between the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. That was his whole subject. He's talking about knowing God's word and knowing truth from divine viewpoint. He's going to tie that back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, the issue is going to come right back to both knowledge and the divisions in the congregation. And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to he's going to move into the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what does the judgment seat of Christ have to do with knowledge and carnality versus spirituality? Well, that's where he drives the argument home because the emphasis is that carnality carnality is related to ignorance of doctrine because when you're carnal, you can't learn doctrine. It's God the Holy Spirit who teaches you doctrine, God the Holy Spirit who produces maturity. And when you're carnal, there's no growth in knowledge. You can't understand divine viewpoint, and the result is going to be... Uh, negative production in the spiritual life, and when there's negative production in the spiritual life, you're going to end up at the judgment seat of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble, and no productivity and no rewards, and that's where he heads with this. So it's a a tremendous uh, practical value and motivational value that if we're not advancing in knowledge of the word and divine viewpoint, then there can't be any production. And consequently, without production, it doesn't matter how much Christian service there is, if there's no production under the Holy Spirit, then the result is loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's look at verse 1. Paul says, and I, brethren, notice he says brethren, he doesn't say brothers and sisters, just a note here is more and more you're going to discover that modern translations, and I'm going to have to spend, I can already see it coming, I'm going to have to spend a whole hour looking at the issue of gender-sensitive translations. And more and more translations from people who ought to know better are coming out and, with this gender-sensitive language. Now, the problem with that is that it's built on a human viewpoint concept of culture and language, but inherently it is an extremely subtle attack on inerrancy and verbal plenary inspiration, because it changes the when you change the meaning of this of the text the translation to being gender inclusive, it changes the meaning and the emphasis in the original greek it 's also a very subtle attack on God because God revealed the word a certain way and God if God had wanted Paul to say brothers and sisters he could have said that and so you see it's an assault on on uh inspiration and inerrancy so we have to be careful there's a new translation out on the internet called the NET Bible the New English Translation and um, the uh Sadly, the New Testament is translated almost exclusively by the New Testament Department of Dallas Seminary, and it buys com- completely buys into gender-sensitive language. It's not as bad as the new, uh, there's, a, there's a new international version that's becoming available called Today's New International Version, and it is completely gender-sensitive and gender-inclusive and has... uh just created a firestorm of controversy, and most conservatives who are believers in infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, uh, scholars, are uh, writing tremendous critiques about this. But all of that's aside from our subject this morning, but Before we get much longer, I'm going to have to address this in terms of some things coming up in 1 Corinthians, so we will take a look at that whole subject and why it's not just a matter of male chauvinism, it's not... Uh, Patriarchy. In fact, you know, one of the ironies is you keep hearing the feminist scream about how the church is a patriarchy, and if you analyze involvement in church, I'm using the term in a very broad sense, involvement in church from Roman Catholicism to liberal Protestantism to conservative Protestantism across the board, what you will discover is on any given Sunday, probably the vast majority of people at any church are women and not men. And most churches, the the primary work that's carried out in most churches is done by women. Now, the men may be on the board, but the women are doing all the work because we feminized the church over the last two or three hundred years. And and. Um, You know, what I've discovered, uh, a pastor friend of mine asked me because he's in a more traditional church and he's got a problem with, you know, so many women and very few men coming. And I say, you've got to build your church focusing on building the men and the women will come. But if you, like most denominations, are focusing on women's ministries and this for the women and that for the women and putting women in any kind of leadership position, the men won't come. So you have to focus on, on, on your men because men are the spiritual leaders in the home and not the, not the women, according to Scripture. That doesn't mean there, as I've said many times, that doesn't mean that women are less than men. It's a difference in role. You know, a tight end is just as important to a football team as a quarterback. But the quarterback's the leader. He's the one who calls the plays unless the coach happens to be someone who wants to call all the plays from the sideline. Anyway, that's getting aside from the point. I, brethren, he's talking to believers. Brethren emphasizes the fact that he is talking to believers. He said, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual. So here he's beginning to change the notion here of spiritual, not just regenerate, but he's talking to them as regenerate in terms of something more. Now, in this first use here, you don't get all that, all that he's going to pack into it. It doesn't It doesn't become apparent except in the contrast. He said, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. Now, when you look at this at first blush in the English, it looks like men of flesh is equivalent to being immature, to being a baby in Christ, but there's more to it than that. The word for men of flesh, and incidentally the NIV horribly mistranslates this, as worldly. Worldly is a, typically a translation of the Greek word kosmos, meaning world. And this is sarkikos, which means flesh, from the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, meaning flesh. And the word here, men of flesh, has to do with those who are living according to the flesh or the sin nature. Um, but as to men of flesh, as to carnal, that is, carnal was the word that was used in the uh, King James Version. As to babes in Christ, now let's look at a couple other points. First of all, carnal means to live according to the sin nature. So let's remember that phraseology, according to the sin nature. That's the same phrase that's used according to the flesh that's used over in Galatians chapter 5.16. So Paul says they're living uh, according to the flesh. He goes on to say in verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. So in this state of carnality, they're not able to receive or really understand uh move beyond basic doctrine because they're mostly carnal. He says indeed even now you're not yet able for you are still fleshly, sarkikos. You are still fleshly For since there is jealousy and strife among you, so we have a further definition in the context of what it means to be fleshly. Living according to the sin nature is characterized here by jealousy and strife. And also he says, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Actually, in the Greek it says walking according to man. Kata anthropon. According to man. The same kind of phraseology you have in Galatians 5.16, walking according to the flesh. So we have to put these things together, and we recognize from Galatians 5.16 and 17 that the contrast is between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature, and walking by the Holy Spirit and walking by the sin nature. Therefore, when we follow the hermeneutical principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see, therefore, that spiritual here must go beyond simple regeneration to emphasize the role of God the Holy Spirit, who is the key to the spiritual life of the church-age believer. Now, let's go back and plug that into that phrase, babes in Christ, because that looks like it's talking about simple immaturity, which is how 99% of people will translate this. However, the Greek word here is not the Greek word brephos. There's two different words for Greek in Greek that can refer to a baby. Brephos, which is spelled B-R-E-P-H-O-S, brephos refers to a baby who is immature in age, and the emphasis is on helplessness due to infancy. That's brephos. The emphasis is on helplessness due to infancy. The word here, though, is napios, napios, and napios is important because it was used as a term of insult, N-E-P-I-O-S. Napios emphasizes ignorance, not helplessness, But ignorance. Now what's the subject? Back, all the way back into the end of verse 1, the issue has been knowledge, divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. The the, the contrast is between learning God's Word and learning to think like God versus learning to think like man. And so what Paul says here is that I can't address you as men of flesh, but as napios. Now the word napios, it's interesting, almost every commentary I read emphasized this, that napios was a pejorative term, an insulting term, just like you uh, parents, and some of you will remember this because your parents did this for you when you were 14 or 15. You did something stupid, and your parents said, "Quit acting like a baby." Well, if they were talking in Greek. They would not have used "brephos." They would have used "napios." So you can be chronologically old. You can be many years past your re- age of regen- your time of regeneration, but you're still acting like a an ignorant. Maybe. So the emphasis here is not on uh, immaturity, per se, but is on ignorance, and the reason they're ignorant is because they haven't been walking by the Holy Spirit and learning doctrine under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So napios, uh, and it's interesting, the commentaries all recognize that napios is a term uh, of insult, but then they can't go anywhere with it they they never apply that significantly here and they, they jump right back into thinking into saying that this is just a term for immaturity uh, they're ignorant because they have rejected Paul, what Paul has said so far is that they've rejected positional truth they don't understand it they're not applying it they've rejected divine viewpoint and they're failing to confess their sins so Paul says that because of that when he was first there it 's a historical era's tense here. I gave you milk to drink when I was first there because you were you were at that time a brephos. you were actually a young believer, so I gave you milk to drink, not solid food for at that time you weren 't able to receive solid food, you were immature at that time, you were both immature and um, and and, and typical of immature believers they're spending most of their time out of fellowship but then he goes on to say indeed even now you're not yet able you're still not able why because you're not walking by the spirit so you weren't able to receive solid food initially because you were a young believer but now you still can't receive it because you are an out of fellowship believer verse three you're still carnal you're Still operating on the sin nature, and this is evident from the jealousy and strife among you. He says, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So you're still walking like a, a, an unbeliever. And the point here is that the believer can live and act and look just like an unbeliever. And that's what he's saying to these Corinthians. You're still walking like a mere man. You're walking like an un, unbeliever. Now, remember what he says and what Paul says over in Galatians 5 about the sin nature. The deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the sin nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. That's exactly what's going on in Corinth, enmity, strife, and jealousy. And then he goes on to say in five twenty one, Galatians 5.21, Envying drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, If you're living like this on the sin nature, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What's he going to do in First Corinthians three? He's going to immediately move from this subject of the divisions in the congregation to warn them about the dangers of losing rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So what he is saying here in 1 Corinthians 3 must be the same thing he's saying in Galatians 5, and that is that there's a contrast between an absolute state of walking by the Spirit or being spiritual and an absolute state of carnality. He's not talking about immaturity. He's talking about not being in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit, but instead living your life according to the sin nature. So we charted this this way. We have our eternal realities on one side, temporal realities on the other. At the instant of salvation, we are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and placed in Christ, that's positional truth. At the same time, we have our day-to-day experience. At the instant of salvation, we're filled by the Holy Spirit, but it, and we're walking by the Spirit, but it's not long before we sin. When we sin, we are out of fellowship. We start walking according to the sin nature. We're walking in darkness, John says. We're operating on the basis of the sin nature, which is called carnality. The only way to recover is to use 1 John 1, 9, confess or admit our sins to God, and we are restored to fellowship so that we can continue to grow. When we're walking by the Spirit, we're walking in the light. That means we can learn the Word of God, and it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God that produce spiritual growth. When you don't have the Word of God with the Spirit of God, there's no spiritual growth, and you end up, you may be chronologically old as a believer, but you are still living like a baby, not a helpless baby, but an ignorant baby, where the issue isn't uh, age, the issue is ignorance, and that's the problem with the Folks at Corinth. Now, next time, we'll come back and begin in verse 4 and look at the results of carnality, both in time, that is, in the divisiveness of the congregation, but in eternity in terms of the judgment seat of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the fact that we, too, need to make sure that we are walking according to the Spirit, that we are in dependence upon the Spirit. We are walking by means of the Spirit and advancing in our spiritual growth. Only when we are walking by the Spirit can we understand the things that the Spirit has revealed in your word. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here uh, this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make it sure and certain. You cannot understand much that is in the word of God because you are spiritually dead. You do not have the tools, the equipment that you need in order to understand the Word. The only way you can receive those tools and that ability is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant, God does many different things for you that are yours forever and that can never be taken away from you, part of which is you receive eternal life. Another part of it is you receive a human spirit and you receive the Holy Spirit. And on the basis of that, you are then able to grow and mature as a believer. It's, the issue is not simply being saved, but once you are saved, what you are going to do with your spiritual life. But the most important decision you'll ever make is the one you make right now whether or not you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Right now, right where you sit, you have this opportunity. All you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and you will have eternal life. It's not a matter of works, it's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.